Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for The Briefing. If you're a, a new listener to The Briefing or a casual listener, thank you so much for being with us and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, we'd love you to hit subscribe in your podcast app so you can join the regular briefing community every morning as we give you this 20-minute download of the news. We'd love you to get on board. So hit subscribe on whichever app you're listening to. In today's briefing, we're going to find out why our wages haven't been going up. Our objective is to have real wage increases and we have practical plans to do that. People will be seeing in their bank accounts a wage increase. Our economic plan, our economic agenda uh, is geared towards getting real wages moving again. So as you can hear there, wages became a big political issue in the recent election. The Labor Party, as you just heard, made big promises about wages going up. Um, they're certainly not yet and they haven't been for 10 years. So from stolen wages to a loss of bargaining power, we're going to find out why workers have been getting a bad deal for a decade. That is our briefing right after today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Tuesday the 1st of November, Melbourne Cup Day. Well, the truth is coming out about the South Korean Halloween crowd crush that killed 154 people. So police have confirmed that only 139 officers were deployed to watch this crowd of 100,000 people and that the police were there to check for drugs rather than control the crowd. So by contrast, 4,000 officers were sent to a K-pop concert of 50,000 revelers earlier this month. And tributes are also flowing for the 23-year-old Sydney filmmaker, Grace Rashid. She died in the crush. And also another young life has been remembered overnight. In Perth, hundreds gathered to remember 15-year-old Indigenous boy Cassius Turvey. He died just over a week ago. It is my loss, but it's also your loss and everyone in the country and, and Cassius' community, family and friends. Yeah, that's his mum, Michelle, on the project and more vigils are planned in Australia and overseas. And I don't think it'll be the last we hear about this story, especially once that murder trial begins. Um, Yeah, really interesting that news out of South Korea, Katrina, that they just were not prepared for this crowd crush and just just devastating. And especially where this Halloween party was held with all those tiny little winding, narrow alleyways, the fact that police weren't onto that given it was, you know, a return of huge crowds to that area after many years of COVID restrictions, um, I think we are definitely going to hear more about this investigation. And there's been a big and a very interesting twist in the netball sponsorship story. So after losing Gina Reinhart's money, the Diamonds have a new sponsor, the Victorian government, a month before the state election. To be able to have the world's very best netball team wearing our logo, projecting all that we offer to the world and to the rest of our country is absolutely fantastic. Premier Dan Andrews there delivering a mic drop on the day before caretaker government kicks in, although the opposition has said that they will honour that funding if they come to power uh, on November 26. So Visit Victoria, which is the government's tourism arm, they've stumped up the cash, $15 million, which is the exact gap left by Gina Reinhart's Hancock prospecting. Yes. Yeah, so as you might remember, Gina Reinhart pulled the sponsorship after Indigenous netballer Danelle Wallum refused to wear the company's logo because of genocidal comments made by her father many years ago. So this is a great outcome, 
obviously for the Diamonds, but also for Danelle Wallum. She must be feeling so much better. It was so stressful for her to make that stand. Not that it stopped her from performing well on debut. She was just incredible. It's also good for Visit Victoria, Katrina, because they're getting such a great publicity out of this because there was so much interest in the story. It couldn't be any better for Visit Victoria, although a lot of people have been critical of, you know, maybe taxpayer funding being used in this way. Although I did see somebody hit out on Twitter yesterday and said, well, for all the people who are upset about that, maybe they should be pushing for mining royalties to be increased. And there's been a very interesting election result in Brazil. Um, Such a huge backstory to this one. So a 77-year-old man called Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, um, who was president until 2010, then went to jail for corruption, has now been re-elected. Because they tried to bury me alive. And I am here. I am here to govern the country in a very difficult situation. So this is the ultimate comeback story. Uh, Lula, as he's known, beat the far-right incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, who might be doing a bit of a Donald Trump. Tom, he hasn't Mm. conceded yet, and he said he won't accept a loss. Yeah, so that's sparking fears of political violence in Brazil, which is the world's fourth largest democracy. Um, Both of these men, Bolsonaro and Lula, are opposite ends of the political spectrum, but both controversial, um, Lula for the, the corruption charges that sent him to jail, Bolsonaro um, for his far-right politics, um, denigrating minorities, overseeing a hopeless COVID response and massive deforestation of the Amazon. A Queensland woman with spina bifida has said she felt forced to crawl along the aisle of a Jetstar plane. Natalie Curtis had been on a flight from Townsville to Bangkok. When she arrived in Thailand, an airline worker told her she'd need to pay extra for what's known as an aisle wheelchair to disembark. Right, and so you've interviewed this woman. Yeah, I actually covered this story yesterday, Tom. So, you know, I didn't know much about what an aisle wheelchair is. So apparently the aisles are too narrow for a regular wheelchair to make its way on board. So this aisle wheelchair is much narrower. Now, Natalie had travelled from Townsville. She stopped off in Singapore and a couple of other places. And she said she had no issue with using the aisle wheelchair. She's never had an issue before, never been asked to pay. But on arrival in Bangkok, she did and she refused out of principle because she didn't think that was right. Uh, And then the airline staff said that they could carry her. She thought that might be a bit dangerous. She didn't want to be dropped. So she made what she said was a really humiliating and embarrassing decision to crawl uh, eight rows where she could find her own wheelchair and um, get into that chair. So she says she's never going to fly Jetstar again. Mm. Jetstar were right on it and they've said, look, there was a bit of a language barrier um, they believe that she wasn't asked to pay, but they've refunded her full airfare and they've also given her additional compensation. But never a great look for an airline when there's video because her friend filmed it on her phone. Never a great look of somebody who's wheelchair bound being forced to, uh, or she says she was forced to crawl down the aisle of a plane. I don't get this. Jetstar uh, unreservedly apologising, but also saying that she... She wasn't um, withheld the chair for, you know, payment requests. So I don't, I don't get what Jetstar is saying there. Yeah, although you wouldn't want to get into a public war of words with a woman who has spina bifida and who is an amazing advocate mm. for people with disabilities.
Yeah, but they've essentially accused her of getting it wrong here whilst apologising mm. at the same time. So, yeah, <laughs> interesting one. Um, a couple of other quick stories for you before we get into the briefing. The Melbourne Cup is on today. Um, it's set to be the coldest in nearly 30 years as temperatures uh, only get to 14 degrees. Might help people keep their <laughs> shoes on. <laughs> um, I hope so. Yeah, first time full crowds will be back at Flemington, so that's a great thing for race goers. Um, the RBA will put up rates again today, probably by 25 basis points rather than the double dose of 50. And Elon Musk has an interesting plan, Katrina. Yeah, he wants people to pay for their blue ticks on Twitter in the order of about 20 bucks a month. Mm. I don't know if people are going to want that, um, but they need to raise some capital somehow. So this is one of their suggestions for a user-paid version of Twitter. Oh dear, he's going to need a lot of better ideas than that if he's going to turn this business around and get those tens of billions of dollars of investment back. Oh well, we'll keep watching that one. (laughs) Um, We'll catch you later, Katrina. Rihanna Patrick is about to join me as we look at what's going on with wages. Australian workers have been getting a raw deal on wages and there's two ways that this happens. Wages actually being stolen, that is unlawful underpayment, and then there's the terrible bargaining power that has seen real wages flatline for the last decade. So that's one of the issues the Labor Party campaigned on really hard to get into office at the last election. Now that they're in office, we're seeing how hard it is to actually do that for a government. Ben Schneider's been investigating the wage problem for years. He's an investigative journalist at The Age and author of Hard Labor, Wage Theft, in an age of inequality. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Let's start by focusing in on these numerous examples where workers are literally having their wages stolen through underpayment. Tell us about your reporting on those issues and and what the trends are there, why this happens and how this happens. Really what we've seen in Australia over the last 10 years or so, and, and I've done a lot of reporting in this area, is that there's just been widespread wage theft across all parts of the low-wage economy, whether it's retail, fast food, horticulture, hospitality, some of the biggest employers in the country. What we've seen through this whole period is that there's been a real kind of shift in power in the Australian labour market, whereby people without much power are really losing out to, to big companies and small companies who are able to whose profitability has probably never been higher. Yeah, so what? when you say the last 10 years, are you insinuating that there is a real upward trend here? Were we doing the same kind of analysis on the, the decades before? And, and if that is the case, what are the factors that have changed the power in those relationships? It's a hard thing to measure. There's, there's no easy way to measure wage theft over time. But what we have seen in particular over the last 10 years is many of these kind of stories emerged through reporting or through people coming forward. Over a longer period, 30, 40 years, there's a shifting in the balance of power in the Australian labour market. Um, we've gone from a heavily unionised workforce where wages were growing pretty strongly for much of the 20th century to one where now it's become largely de-unionised. You've got growth in areas such as gig work, contracting, subcontracting, and of course, things that have been stretching back for decades are large numbers of people in casual work. So we've got, we've got a very kind of um, fragmented workforce and labour market. And that's really been something that's shifted over 30 or 40 years. 
So Ben, when we look at that workforce change, I mean, who is most at risk and what has been that change in how the Australian workforce is made up? I, I think when you look at the types of workers that are most likely to get underpaid or have their, their wages stolen, you're looking at young people, you're looking at temporary migrants, you're also, you know, it's really across the board, but you Typically, it's in low-wage jobs. Before the pandemic, there was upwards of a million people with working rights who were here on temporary visas. They had, in effect, less rights than local workers. They were more easily easy to exploit. They were more easy to underpay. That was really prevalent in a lot of industries such as hospitality. Okay, so we're talking about sort of two separate but related wage issues here. We're talking about wage theft where people are breaking the law or close to breaking the law or f- flirting with breaking the law on how they pay their workers. What I'm hearing from you is that is mostly affecting people in um, the more low paid sectors like the ones you've just mentioned. Uh, and then we're talking about overall wage stagnation where wages for the last decade haven't gone up in real terms. Now, you said there that wage theft mostly affects people in those lower paid industries. What about the wage stagnation picture? Is that similar, that it's those people who are more badly affected by a lack of wage growth and the people in more specialised jobs, often, you know, with higher levels of training and education, their wages actually haven't been flat? There's many segments to, you know, the labour market. But if you looked at the, the wages growth over the last decade as a whole, largely it's it's been across the board thing. You know, we're, we're seeing wage stagnation across many different industries and many different sectors. So it's not just confined to, you know, people in low wages jobs. And we're going through a period now, obviously with high inflation, where living standards and real wages have collapsed. So people even at the top end have had fairly flat wages. Is that right? Well, no, I I think when you're starting to look at, you know, like people on the executive level, people on really high wages or, or high wages, they're doing reasonably well. We can see that when you look at the inequality data, um, income inequality in Australia. That's increased markedly since the 1980s. It's up about 40%. That shows a growing division between a smaller number of people who are doing really, really well and a larger number of people that are where their, um, their wages have stagnated. Ben, as part of this book, I mean, you went and actually gathered stories from some of those workers who were willing to kind of put their stories out there. But what were those stories that you heard? And I mean, why aren't they reporting being underpaid? Over the years, I've probably spoken to many hundreds of workers who have experienced wage theft. Um, One feature of it in particular is people that are on temporary visas live in something close to fear. Now, they might have an ambition or a dream to live in Australia to get permanent residency, but quite often their their visas tie them to their employer. If they quit their job because the conditions are poor or they're being underpaid, they've only got a limited amount of time to find a new sponsor, someone who's willing to pay for them to stay in Australia. So what are the solutions here, Ben? How, how do you think this situation can change um, right through the spectrum? I guess we're talking about employers who don't follow the awards, um, right through to the broader issues around wage stagnation and the overall bargaining power that workers have in our economy. Um, What do you think needs to change? Some of the things that really probably need to change is changes in enforcement and regulation. So there's a workplace regulator, the Fair Work Ombudsman. It probably needs better resources, a tougher approach on companies that do the wrong thing. And then there's the more informal types of regulation 
a lightly unionised workforce means that people don't have somewhere to go if they have been underpaid. Uh, so in particular in low-paid jobs, if it's largely non-union, as it is in hospitality or on farms where maybe 1% or 2% of the workforce is in a union, a lot of this goes on on, on the quiet, in, in silence. So you need to have both a stronger role for the Fair Work Ombudsman and also, you know, we probably need to see a stronger role for unions in Australian workplaces. So one solution that's been raised by the government and they've put this into legislation which was introduced to Parliament this week was a new way of um, bargaining, multi-employer bargaining. Can you explain the significance of this, what it means and how it works? Yeah, this is potentially a major change to the Australian workplace um, and the Australian industrial relations system. For a long time, the emphasis since the 1990s really has been on something called enterprise bargaining where workers and or their union negotiate with the direct employer. And that was meant to be a way to unlock profitability, a bit of a win-win for both employers and workers. But the system's really started to fall into disrepair. It's getting used less and less. More people are being employed by the minimum wage of the award. And we see those growing disparities in income and wages that, that we talked about earlier. Um, multi-employer bargaining would allow a group of workers across an industry or a supply chain to bargain collectively uh, with a group of employers and potentially to take industrial action across that, that sector. So that really broadens the impact and the power of bargaining. And the idea is that that would then flow into, you know, the potential for, for higher wages. Now, there's a lot of water on the bridge. Um, laws can look important or influential on paper, but in practice, that might be a different matter. But this is potentially a really significant change. So do you think it will make a big difference? I think it could. Yeah, I think it really could. I think it could really change the dynamics of the Australian uh, labour market um, and also the rights of people to, to bargain more broadly and to make bigger wage claims. You mentioned there about the changing role of unions. I mean, what does something like what Labor has recently announced mean for unions, do you think? I think it's a real opportunity. Um, and obviously, the Labor Party and the unions are, are, are close. Um, many unions are affiliated directly to the Labor Party. A number of politicians have a, have a union background. So it's it's no surprise that they're they're introducing something that could help unions. But the potential to have more wide-ranging and significant bargains or attempts to increase wages, that can only be good for for the union movement. More broadly, Ben, what, what do you think having flat wages does for a society? Do you think it's it's quite a, a bad or destabilizing phenomenon? Yeah, I think I think it's it's really quite dangerous in a sense. If there's not a sense of shared prosperity or people sharing the benefits of of rising wealth, you know, you can see this most clearly in the United States where the inequality is just at extraordinary levels, you know, we're, we're, it hasn't been that that high since the um, the Robert Barron period of the, the the late 19th century. There's a clear link to be drawn between high levels of inequality and a sense of prosperity not being shared, and political extremism and conspiracy theories and and all the kind of maladies of of a, a deeply unequal, deeply unfair society. So it's really important for all of us, I think, that inequality is is reduced, that the benefits of a growing economy are shared. It's in the interests of the rich and it's obviously in the interests of people who, who have missed out through all that. So yeah, the American example is a, a bit of a warning sign basically that if you 
if you let the market decide what wages are and you don't have strong bargaining power and good laws that keep employers honest but also give workers enough collective power to, to bargain for better wages, that that's where we end up and people are surviving on tips. That's right. And if we look at Australia and inequality in Australia, of the rich countries, the OECD, we're in the top third of the most unequal countries. Now, I reckon that jars with the perception of life in Australia mm. um, and, and particularly in the past where Australia was an incredibly equal place really um, through much of the 20th century, obviously with some important you know, there's a lot of discrimination and a lot of other issues, but in terms of income, it was an incredibly equal place. That's really started to unravel over the last 30 or 40 years. And, you know, we're now in the top third of the most unequal countries in the OECD, the, the Rich Nations Club. Wow, that's a wake-up call. I think it is. That was Ben Schneider, author of Hard Labour, Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality. You read a good chunk of the book, Rihanna. What did you think? Yeah, look, I found it really interesting. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was the fact that there's a million non-citizens that work here. That means unions really don't have a place for them. And and I found that quite interesting about, I guess, this changing place for unions and what that means to that big cohort of workers who don't actually have citizen rights here. Yeah, well, they get screwed harder than anyone but you know having a million of those workers undermines i guess the bargaining power of other workers because they can go to these these overseas workers that often get exploited um yeah it was lots to discuss there including what's going on in federal politics as we mentioned there's that multi-employer bargaining legislation that's been introduced so that will be one to watch um we'll put that in our headlines when that legislation gets through um the house and then the Senate, because as Ben said, that could be uh, an important change that might see wages going up more than they have. Yeah, and one which sees employees in whatever area they might have a common ground with being able to come together to really influence what they get paid and I guess what their workplace conditions are. Yeah, drive a harder bargain. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, the start of a three-part series on gut health and its relationship with our brain and mental health. Listener.